If you have a Bible, please turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading and preaching today on verses 11 to 18. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got it printed for you there in the bulletin so you can follow along with us. There's also a sermon outline on the next page of the bulletin. As Tim said earlier, what Isaiah foretold, which was that one day not only Jews but Gentiles too would be brought into the kingdom... Paul in these verses says that has happened now that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now the good news of grace goes to every person, every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. We're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, Let me read to you. Therefore, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands... Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace, To you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. Isn't that good news? Uh, When Paul thought about the Ephesians, uh, he must have thought about the issue of peace every single time he thought about them. Um, Unlike many of the other letters that Paul wrote to churches, There's no indication in the letter to the Ephesians that he had any ongoing conflicts with them. That was unusual. Um, You know, not that Paul was a picker of fights. I don't think he was, but oftentimes when he started a church and helped lead it in those early days, inevitably divisions arose, conflicts arose, and he's usually having to write to make peace. But the Ephesians, there's not a word of that. It's as if they already are at harmony. But... In the background of that harmony was a story filled with violence. When Paul first came to Ephesus to preach the gospel, he spent two years there um, uh, preaching every day in a rented room at a school. And the end of that two years, uh, what happened was a riot, a citywide riot, where uh, groups of people in the city got together and decided to basically string Paul up and murder him by mob violence. And it was just at the nick of time that a man stepped in and saved his life. You can read about that in Acts chapter 19. And then later, when Paul went back to Jerusalem, he took one of the Ephesians with him, a brother named Trophimus. And because he had the Ephesian named Trophimus with him in the holy city, the Jews got mad and then they strung him up and sent him to Rome where he was in prison writing this letter. So even though he had great peace with the Ephesians, their story together was not one of peace. Their story together was one of much opposition from the outside. Now think about it. This is a great week, actually, to think about this topic. What causes 
turmoil or the lack of peace in the world? Humans, yeah, humans do. (laughs) Haven't we seen that playing out on the world stage this week in an incredible way? There's all kinds of reasons why peace is just not our natural thing. But notice what Paul says there in verse 14, I believe it is. Do I have that right? In verse 14, he says simply this, Jesus himself is our peace. What I want to tell you is that Christians don't so much have a strategy for peace as they have a person of peace. That's a a big difference, actually. We're going to talk about that difference today. We don't have a strategy for our peace in our lives or with each other or for world peace or any of that. But what we do have is a person who will bring peace to all those areas. If we'll follow him, if we'll believe in him, and if we'll listen to him. And so today I just got two points for you, which is unusual, right? Two points. First of all, I want to show you why we tend to lack peace as human beings. Paul tells us something about that. Secondly, I want to show you how it is that Jesus himself is our peace, not just a strategy, but a person. And at the end, I'll give you a few ways to apply it to your own life, okay? First of all, why do we uh, not have peace often? Well, notice there in verse 11 uh, through 13, Paul does something that we normally find annoying when people do it. Uh, Do you ever get annoyed when you share someone a, a simple problem in your life and they automatically go to spiritual things? Like they pull the spiritual card on you, like uh, you might say, man, I'm just so tired, I'm working so hard. And they say, well, you know, you got to trust in the Lord, brother. You know, sometimes that, that can annoy us because we're like, man, I just need a nap. You know, it's, not, it's maybe not a spiritual problem. I'm just trying to tell you I'm tired and need a nap. Paul kind of does that here. He takes something that we tend to think all the time is just a, it's just a human problem, this problem of peace. It's an internal problem, you know. I'm just stressed out. I'm anxious. I got too much going on in my head. I just need a break. Or it's a, a horizontal problem, you know. We just need to learn how to get along together. And Paul says, no, wait a minute. There's a spiritual card to play here. Any lack of peace within yourself Or lack of peace horizontally is also a result of a lack of peace vertically, a lack of peace spiritually. And so Paul goes deep. He says, remember, you who are Gentiles, and most of them were Gentiles, remember that back in the day before you knew Christ, verse 12, you were separated from him, you were alienated from the nation of Israel, you were strangers to God's covenant relationship, You were without hope, and you were without God in the world. Did you notice in verse 11 how it began, therefore, remember? The therefore there points us back to what we talked about last week. I mean, always when you say therefore, you're pointing back to what you just said. And the last thing Paul had said is, God has given us as Christians a new life to live, a new kind of life, good works to walk in. He says, because of that, therefore, you need to remember what you once were before you knew Christ. You need to remember the spiritual state of your life before Christ so that you can now see the spiritual state of your life after Christ. Because all human problems of peace are ultimately rooted in a problem with God. Now, I realize you might not think that or feel that this morning, but this is very true. You are as your relationship with God is. 
You are as your relationship with God is. And as Paul makes very clear here, every single one of us, not, nobody in this room and nobody watching in is, is an exception to this. Every one of us are by nature alienated from God. In fact, he, he's listed out five things that were true of us. And one uh, writer summarizes those five things this way. We were Christless, we were stateless, we were friendless, we were hopeless, we were godless. Isn't that a list? Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. That's what we are by nature. Our relationship with God is all messed up and all wrecked. And Paul is saying that even once we become Christians, it's very important that we never forget that we were all of those things. The moment we start to forget that we were all those things, what's going to happen? We're going to believe that the problems of our lives can be solved with superficial solutions. Rather than the deeper solutions that God has brought into the world through the work and the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You are really going to think your peace problems are just internal psychological problems. Merely. I'm not saying there aren't psychological problems. There are. But I'm saying it's not merely that. It's not just, you're not just an animal. You're a person created in the image of God. And so you've got to fix that relationship with God. You're going to think your relational problems are just, usually we think it's the problem with the other person. They need to get things straight. They need to be nicer to me. They need, to, they need to pay more attention to me or respect me more. And, and you might forget, wait a minute, no, I was Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless, and I would still be all five of those things if it weren't for what God did when he sent his son into the world to die for me. Did you know many of the Israelites before Jesus came had forgotten that they were those things? And they had developed a kind of pride of, of nation, a pride, almost like a racial pride. To be a Jew, they thought, is to be on God's team. And instead of thinking that they were on God's team because of grace, they thought they were on God's team because of, you know, they were descendants of Abraham or something like that. Or they were a part of the, the right group of people doing the right things and saying the right things in the right places. And Paul, you know, clearly wants to remind them of that. Well, when he talks about the circumcision and the uncircumcision, and he says, look, circumcision that marked the Jews, that was just something made in the flesh with hands. What it was pointing to is something made in the heart. See, Jews were saved by grace just as much as we are now. The Old Testament and the New Testament has the same plan of salvation. Because all human beings are spiritually separated. And therefore, all human beings need a reconciliation a bringing back together with God. If you're not aware of that this morning, if, if you are dismissive of your spiritual health, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to see a lot of progress in other areas of your life until you start to pay attention to it. Uh, we know this in every uh, relationship, right? That sometimes when we have a conflict with someone, it doesn't spill over into other areas of our lives, but the closer the relationship is, with the person that we're having conflict with, the more likely it is to spill over into everything. Don't y'all know that? Uh, the stranger who cuts you off in traffic and you exchange, you know, horns and maybe words, that might bother you for how long? 
five, ten minutes. Maybe it'll wreck your morning. But if you have a conflict with someone you work with, and they're in the, they're in the office or the cubicle next to you, or they work with you out on the field, how, how much is that going to affect you? It'll run a day, two days, weeks, maybe even years. Uh, if you have a problem with your next-door neighbor, even worse. The worst of all is having a conflict with someone who lives in your house. We know that, don't we know that all too well? When we have conflicts with our spouse or with our children or with our parents, I mean, that can affect literally everything. Well, here Paul is just simply saying this. Don't you think that a conflict with your maker is going to affect more than even a spouse? Because as the Bible says, in him we live and move and have our very being. You can't say that about anybody else. You can't say you live and move and have your being in anybody except God. And it's crazy for us to think we can get our lives in order and fix our lives just with money and strategies and, you know, career paths and, you know, good, peaceful family relationships and ignore the fact that we are godless, Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, cut off from the Lord. It's not a very uh, popular idea, but I believe this. We are in a moment of, of a spiritual health crisis in our community and in our country. Do you believe that? A spiritual health crisis. And I believe, and I know that I'm a pastor, so I'm kind of supposed to believe this, but I actually really do believe it. And even if I weren't a pastor, I believe I'd believe it. That the spiritual health crisis that we have is also a public health crisis of many, many different proportions. Uh, the war going on in Ukraine right now is rooted in a spiritual health crisis that only Jesus Christ can ultimately speak peace to. And so, when we shrug off our spiritual health, when we think, man, my work, it requires a lot of attention. My physical health, i got to go to the gym every day. My, you know, my physical health, I need to eat meals three times a day. But then we come to our spiritual life and think, eh, you know, it'll just happen. I'll have a good relationship with God just, just by osmosis. It'll just somehow get into me. You know, if I'm just, I come around church every now and then, it'll just soak in. That's a crazy way to think. It's a crazy way to think if we're really honest with ourselves. Because God's relationship to us and our relationship with God is the bedrock of every human life. Do you believe that this morning? Why do we lack peace? It's not just because we can't get along with each other. I know we can't, and there's some things you can do to work on that. It's not just because we're psychologically messed up. We are, and there are things you can do to work on that. But it's also beneath that a problem with our maker. And so Paul, while it may seem annoying at first for him to go spiritual all of a sudden, I think it's so vital that we do. And it's probably only annoying to us because we're just, well, I'm not very spiritually minded. We're not very spiritually minded naturally, and so it annoys us. But it is so, so good for us to hear it. Paul says it twice, remember. Verse 11, verse 12, remember what you were. Remember your relationship with God. Don't let... The other things dominate you. Remember, you and God is the most important foundational thing in your life. All right, that's the first thing. Secondly, I want you to see 
how Jesus himself can be our peace. And I want to start by uh, reading to you a quote. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous man who lived in Germany during the Nazi takeover. He was a Christian pastor, and he eventually was arrested and put in a concentration camp and killed there because he was very vocal against the Nazis and against Hitler while he was a pastor. And uh, so I think, you know, when I read this quote, we ought to give him a lot of cred. Uh, he, He went through a lot. He understood things very well. And this is what he says about human problems. He says, the most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must, find, must first search my heart, and yet he never plums its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows that when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearn for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there were no God, oftentimes. The brother views me as I am before the judging and merciful God of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. Bonhoeffer was a wise man. He saw a lot of human problems. He saw the underbelly of humanity, if anybody ever did. And he said, look, the only way to see it, the only way to solve it is come to the cross of Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul does, starting there in verse 14, all the way to the end of the passage that I read to you. He takes us to the cross. Three different times he he, he mentions the cross. First of all, he says in verse uh, 13, We're brought near by the blood of Jesus. And when he says blood of Jesus, he's talking about the cross. Jesus' death there. And then he says in verse 14, he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about the cross when he says in his flesh. And then he says in verse 16, he reconciled us to God in one body through the cross. It's blood, it's flesh, it's cross. The only way to understand how peace can be brought to peaceless people is by staring at what God did for us when his son was nailed up there on the tree. Like I said at the beginning, as Christians, we don't have a strategy for peace. We have a person of peace. A person who had to be put to death and crucified to solve the depths of our problem. Sometimes a strategy will not do. You need a guy. You know what I mean? Uh, my, my car started having trouble this week, and it was beyond. I didn't just look up YouTube videos and come up with a strategy. I called my guy. In fact, I called two guys. The guy at the shop, and then he was too much, so I called my brother. 
Because I got two guys. I got one, you know, that's expensive and one that's less expensive. And, and my brother's not here today. He usually is, but uh, it's a compliment to him. He, he's, a, he's a good guy to call when something breaks. Sometimes a strategy is, I mean, especially when the problem itself is a personal problem. I mean, imagine. Take, for example, the problem of loneliness. A lot of people are lonely in our world, especially after the past couple of years. Very lonely. You can't, you don't, there's no strategy to solve loneliness. Do y'all know that? You can't come up with a 10-step plan to do by yourself to solve loneliness. I'm not trying to make light of it, but you just can't. The only solution of loneliness is what? A person, at least a per- one person, maybe people. And separation from God can't be solved by a human strategy for us to come up with to work our way back up to God. Because it's a problem of separation, of disintegration, of just ripping apart of us and God, it's got to involve God himself coming down to do something in our place that we could never do by our own strategies. And that right there, y'all, is the meaning of the cross of Jesus. That God was taking upon himself the punishment that our sins deserve. So that we could be reconciled. So that we could be atoned for. The whole Old Testament scripture is about this. How people couldn't just come up to the presence of God. That they had to go through a temple. They had to stand on the outskirts. They had to send a priest into the room with a dead animal and its blood to sprinkle the altar. And all that stuff was supposed to be a picture lesson. For how no human being can come to God without a sacrifice offered in their place. Something has to die. Something that's innocent. Something that's spotless has to die in the place of spotty me. And here Paul says, all of that that was foretold in the Old Testament has now finally come true. And no longer do we have to sacrifice animals. No longer do we need priests to go for us into the presence of God. We can go directly there because Jesus has done what all those things pointed to. That's why it says there in verse 14, He broke down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's not talking there about the Ten Commandments or the moral law. He's not saying, well, you can now kill people because Jesus died on the cross, so all the commandments are abolished. That's not what he means. He can't mean that because he goes on in this letter to say, keep the Ten Commandments. What he is talking about is all the animals that had to die, all the circumcisions, all the bloody things that had to be done before Jesus came to remind the people, I need something radical to save me. But now that Jesus has come, not just Jews, but Gentiles, people from all nations, praise the Lord, can hear directly the good news that Jesus died for them and come into a direct face-to-face relationship with God. That's why it says there in um, verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were near and to those who were far off. 4 verse 18, Through Him we both have access. We have a direct path into the Holy of Holies. Direct access to God's very presence through the work of Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit, it says there in verse 18. And so no longer do we have to have all the things that divided Jew and Gentile. 
No longer is there two classes of people in the world. There's just one class of people, sinners of all nations, who then can become, by faith alone in Jesus, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Isn't that good? I love what it says, the way it says it there in verse 17. Maybe you just skip past it, but it's so powerful. It reminds me just of how central Jesus is to everything we do as Christians, or how central he should be. Because after saying Jesus died on the cross, he, his flesh was broken, his blood was spilled, he did that to reconcile us to God and to each other, he brought peace in both directions. Then it says he also came and preached that same peace. After he died, he preached. Now, Jesus Christ never visited the city of Ephesus. True or false? True. He never, he never even got close to Ephesus. He lived a long, long way away. And yet Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, Jesus Christ came to you and preached. Digest that this morning. What does that mean? That means whenever the gospel message is proclaimed by his people, Jesus Christ himself is offering peace to men and women with God directly. Look past me, please. Look past all the people who've ever shared the gospel with you and see the one who made you, see the one who died on the cross for you, holding out his scarred hands to say, come unto me and you will find rest. Come to me and peace will be made between you and God and peace will be made between you and each other even. Because there's no more dividing walls of hostility. That's the simplicity of Christianity right there, in a nutshell. It's not complicated. I mean, in the Old Testament, you could say religion was complicated. You had to know a bunch of different ordinances. And only certain people could know all of them and do them for everybody else. But now it's very, very simple. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we pray, we administer baptism and the Lord's Supper to seal the things that are given in the Word, and that's it. That's all we do. Very simple. It doesn't take a lot of ceremony. It doesn't take special magic hands to do it. It's very simple. But in the things that we do, I want you to look past me, look past us, and see Jesus Christ himself offering the life, death, and resurrection to you for your reconciliation to God. That is where true peace begins in your life. And that, from there, is where true peace can grow in your life and in our life together. Now let me say a few words as we close to help you apply this more you know, clearly and more plainly to you. And this will help you apply not only to your own personal inner feelings of peace, but I think you can take some of this away and help you, help you with some peace that you might not have in your relationships. We started at the beginning of the sermon today with the question, what threatens peace in the world? And I think there are three main things that cause wars and conflicts between us. Um, you might want to write them down, and I'll show you how Jesus is our peace in each of those areas and how you can apply Jesus to those areas. The first reason why we fight and why we don't have peace 
is we have proud hearts. Proud hearts. The second reason why we fight is we have stubborn wills. And the third reason why we fight is we have selfish relationships. Now, if Jesus Christ really came and died on the cross for people like that, people like us, and if he's really here this morning saying, come and have peace with God, I want you to think this morning about how the peace of Christ, how Jesus himself is our peace, can help you with a proud heart, a stubborn will, and a selfish relationship. All right, let's start with a proud heart. Uh, don't you know that? I mean, it seems to me, I don't know, uh, you know, obviously, I don't know the people involved in the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, but it seems to me like a proud heart might have something to do with it. Just from outsider's perspective, layman's perspective. What is a proud heart? Well, it's any time that I take pride or boast in something that I ought not to. Perhaps in the case of the conflict over there, it's racial superiority or national superiority to another nation. It's boasting in my nationality instead of boasting in the God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now think about it. In your life, in little ways, you, we all do this. We have a lack of peace with ourselves and a lack of peace with others because we're trying to make something our boast besides Jesus. And one of the ways that Jesus is peace to us is he teaches us how to do what Paul said. I will not boast in anything except the cross of Christ. Meaning I'm not going to go around life thinking that I'm better and superior to other people because I'm a good person or because I did, I've achieved this or that or my bank account has this much in it or whatever. I'm not going to use anything like that. Because now I've got one thing to boast in. Wow, the God of the universe loved me so much that he gave his son for me. I'll boast in that all day long. Can you believe he loved me that much? Me? Wow. That's boastworthy. And as I boast in that, it begins to push out the other things I boast in. So I don't have to fight you or hate you because you don't have X, Y, or Z that I think I have. Because I know that at the cross, we all stand on equal footing. Sinners who need to be saved by grace. Do you see that? That ministers a peace that goes more than skin deep. It brings it into the heart. It takes my boastful, proud heart, and it begins to humble it. I mean, you cannot hear the message of the cross very much and still be proud. I mean, I mean let me rephrase that. You can hear it, but you can't receive it and still be proud. You can hear it. And, you know, the Lord knows there are a lot of people who've sat in church hearing it a long time, and they're as proud as the day is long. They're no, they're no, less, they're no more humble than they were 50 years ago when they first started hearing it. And that's a sad reality. It's because they've heard, but they haven't received. When you receive the message of the cross, it must humble you because it takes your boasting off of yourself and it puts it where it belongs, puts it in God. As a church, we also have to learn how to together boast in the cross. You know, sometimes a subtle kind of pride can creep into church, you know, Come to our church. We're better than the other ones. You know, we're cooler. Or we're, we're more traditional or we're more tried and true. We're more faithful. We're, you know, 
And, you know, however true those things may be, I don't know if they're true or not, they're kind of irrelevant compared to the cross, right? The thing we ought to boast in is, hey, come to our church because Jesus is preaching this Sunday. Yeah, there's that guy Stan, and yeah, he's okay, but there's Jesus preaching this Sunday, offering peace to men and women, boys and girls. Amazing, isn't it? Stubborn will. How does Jesus help us with a stubborn will? Well, how many of your conflicts come from stubbornness? Anybody in here stubborn in any way? Nah, I'm not stubborn, yeah. We're all very, we can all be very, very stubborn, inflexible. Stubbornness means I think I know the right thing and I'm going to just keep on pressing it until I get it. And I'm not open to persuasion. You know, sometimes you are right, you know. But just the fact that you are right but not open to persuasion makes you stubborn. It's okay to be right and to know you're right about something, but just be open to patience and persuasion and care with someone? How does Jesus help us do that? Well, here's how he does it. Jesus, I'm going to say it again. I've said this like four times now. Jesus Christ himself is preaching to us. Every time we read the Bible, every time we come to bow our hearts to God's word, Jesus Christ himself is addressing us. What does that mean? That means that in our relationships with one another, my will is just not all that relevant. Your will, just not all that relevant. What I want versus what you want doesn't really matter much. What matters for all of us? What does he want? I didn't die on the cross for anybody since. You didn't either. I can't preach anyone into peace with God. I can preach all my life. I can't get one person to come to peace with God unless Jesus preaches. And so therefore, what I want, what I need, what I think is my thing or whatever, in any area of my life, at home, at church, at work, kind of doesn't matter too much it, compared to the question of what does he want me to do? What does he want you to do? And so two people who are naturally warring over something that they both want that's different, can become together united because they stop and they say, you know what, why are we fighting over what we want? Let's together ask God what he wants. I mean, imagine if that happened in the Ukraine right now. If all of a sudden they said, you know what, let's, let's call a ceasefire for a day and let's just pray together. And let's see what the Lord Jesus Christ might want our two countries to do. And we're not going to do anything else until we hear an answer from his word. I mean, you almost have to laugh at that because it's, it's so rare that it happens, right? So an, an incredible to think of it happening. And yet that is the answer to the stubborn will. It's Jesus Christ himself is our peace. Lastly, we have selfish relationships. We were made for relationships with each other and with God. But we were made to serve one another in love as God has served us in love. And yet we approach our relationships so often demanding to be served. Isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples? Even I came not to, to be served. I'm the son of man. I, I'm God. And I came not to be served but to serve. And so how is it that you are trying to treat other people as if they're supposed to serve you? Selfish relationships. 
And so how does Jesus Christ in the middle of our fellowship here at Greater Hope, how does it help us not to pursue relationships selfishly? Well, think about this. Get this picture. If Jesus Christ is in the middle of us, what does that mean about how we go towards each other? There's only one way to go to each other. He's in the middle. We're all standing around in a circle. Get that picture in your mind. How do I get to Tim and Tim get to me? I got to go straight through Jesus. And I'll tell you, I, I find it very hard to bring Jesus into the conversation and continue to think that I'm here to be served by people. I'm really good at thinking that I'm here to be served by people naturally. I'm really good at that. But when I have to go through Jesus, I, I'm really, I get bad at it. And I start to get humbled and convicted and think, wow, what am I doing? Here's an example. I think a real tangible example. A lot of times people will feel very insecure around people. and In church too. Church is probably one of the number one places people feel this way. They'll feel like, man, I don't belong. I feel like I don't belong. I feel like I just... I'm not a part of the in crowd. And, and it's really hard to relate to people when you feel that way, right? When you feel on the outside and shut out. Well, imagine instead of going to where we normally go when we feel that way, and all of us have felt that way, okay? Instead of going where we normally go, which is either A, man, these people are just rude, and so I don't want to be around them because they don't, they don't come and welcome me. I hate this. Or we go to, I'm just terrible. I'm never going to fit in anywhere because no one ever likes me and no one ever wants me to be around. I'm a worthless person. Instead of going there, how about trying going through Jesus? And think about how that might be different. See, when I go through Jesus, and I, I don't feel like I belong, but I go through Jesus, I have, to, I have to pass through the fact that Jesus himself often felt like he did not belong in this world. Why? Because he didn't belong in this world. And he actually told his disciples, if I don't belong in the world... You will not belong in the world either. And so come and join me in not belonging in the world. And instead of having a pity party, or instead of having a hate fest, when I feel like I don't belong, I can join Jesus in pursuing the outcasts. Instead of me thinking about who is going to come and greet me this morning, I ought to think about who do I need to go greet this morning? With Jesus, the man of sorrows who's been rejected over and over again throughout his earthly life. Do you see what I mean by that? I, I could take that with almost any scenario. That's just one scenario. And I'm not talking to any particular person. That's just one that came to my heart this week. has nothing to do with any particular person. Don't feel like I'm singling you out. But it's a common problem, and there are many other common problems in all of our relationships that would be greatly helped if we learned to go through Jesus rather than a long way around him. Paul says in verse 14, look at it again, you get your eyes on it. He doesn't say, guess what, we've got a great strategy for peace. Here's the top ten things to think to have peace. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, we have a strategy, power, go out and force your will on people, that'll give you peace. No, he says, we have a person. Verse 14, he himself is our peace and there is no other amen let's pray this morning